From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, April 4th. I'm Marco Werman. A bombing shatters the newfound peace in Somalia's capital, but this reporter says the city's rebirth won't be stopped. Buildings are going up, people are fixing up homes, the roads are being fixed and cleaned up, there are street lights. So you get the sense that people are trying to reclaim the city from the rubble. And later, the U.S. court battle over taped interviews given by former IRA members to a Boston College history project. They have spoken about operations they were involved in, they have named names. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Two weeks ago, we reported on a rare sign of progress in war-torn Somalia. The National Theater in the Somali capital, Mogadishu, had reopened after decades of neglect. It was a symbol of Somalia's potential rebirth after so much bloodshed there. Well, today, that symbol was shattered by a deadly suicide bombing. Several people, including the head of Somalia's Olympic Committee, were killed in the blast. Back on March 20th, we spoke with a proud Jabril Ibrahim Abdullah, one of the National Theater's organizers. Jabril joins us now again from Mogadishu. And Jabril, first of all, our condolences to you and the families of the Somalis who died today. Can you tell us what happened at the theater? What was going on when the blast occurred? So this day of April 4th, is the day in which the Somali National TV was established 28 years ago. And the Minister of Telecommunication organized an event to commemorate, and that event was taking place at the theater, attended by Prime Minister and 10 cabinet members, members of parliament, and prominent Somali civil society, when this deadly suicide exploded in the middle of this, what to be, what's supposed to be a beautiful and celebration morning. Apparently, Somalia's Prime Minister was speaking when, when the blast occurred. Well, what happened was the Somali band, the music band, which uh, we had been helping them to revive itself, perform a concert, part of celebration. When that ended, his speech began, and finally the prime minister was sitting in front of the row, and I was sitting behind that on the left side corner, not in the middle of it. Had I been in the middle, I would have been also taken out with this. But what happened when the prime minister was calling to speak, all the cabinet members also went with him to the podium, and that is when he would speak about three or four minutes, cracking some jokes, that's when the explosion took place. And as a matter of fact, it was such powerful that uh, everybody has to run to their lives. And it was, it, was, it was a horrific scene. Have authorities said who's responsible for this attack and, and what the motive was, if there was one? Well, we don't know yet. I think the TFG, uh, Transition of the Government Authority, Minister of Information, all of them pointed finger to Al-Shabaab. Uh, and of course, Al-Shabaab websites, as we know, it already claimed that. Uh, and this is an indication this was a work of Al-Shabaab in this tragedy uh, in the middle of Mogadishu, particularly one life 
was about to return to normal. Jabril, when you spoke with us two weeks ago, you told us about the opening day of art exhibits and concerts and plays at the National Theater of Somalia. Now this attack on a space that is so close to you, you've lost friends as well in this act of violence. How big a personal setback is this for you? You know, what is amazing is that I'm lucky to allow to talk to you today. I was really in the middle of it. And the two people actually who died, a close friend of mine, we have we, we cracked some jokes and, and we talked about the two of them. We're supposed to have a lunch tomorrow afternoon somewhere in Mogadishu where they are sending somebody to football a team to Rwanda or somewhere in Africa. And I was invited to come to, to the lunch. So we're really talking some issues. So I lost a very, very close friends. And it's a personal setback. It shocks I'm hoping this will be a temporarily setback. One or two uh, horrific events will not stop. One one year is it took them to wait this long. I'm confident the Somalis will get back to their feet. And particularly, this event happened in the middle of Mogadishu. So it is indeed a personal, international. I just do not believe the tenacity, the resiliency, the commitment people are showing for the first time in one one years will be shattered that easily, but certainly it will be set back. Well, we are, too, very glad and fortunate to have you alive and speaking with us as well. And again, our condolences to you, Jabril. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Jabril Ibrahim Abdullah heads the Center for Research and Dialogue in Mogadishu. New York Times correspondent Jeffrey Gettleman recently returned from Mogadishu. He says that although al-Shabaab fighters are still able to strike in the capital, the city he saw recently was much different than the Mogadishu he'd seen on previous visits. For the first time when I arrived at the airport, instead of getting this mimeograph sheet that asks for your name, address, and caliber of weapon, I got a bright yellow welcome card that didn't have any mention of guns and had little checkboxes for reason of visit, and one of them was holiday. Then you leave the airport, you go out onto the streets. There is construction going on everywhere. Buildings are going up. People are fixing up homes. The roads are being fixed and cleaned up. There are streetlights. Fresh coats of paint everywhere you look. So you get the sense that people are trying to reclaim the city from the rubble. Then just the access that I had. You know, most trips to Mogadishu, I have to hire this militia of 10 gunmen. They stand behind me. We make limited trips to refugee camps or certain sites, and then we retreat back to our hotel. This time, we were able to drive around the city for hours, go into people's homes, go with students to school, hang out at the fish market, and I watched these fishermen hauling in these enormous sharks. And you were doing Um, this without these militia men bodyguards? they, they They were with me, but they were hanging back, and it was just a different environment. People are walking to school. They're hanging out at night, which used to be a definite no-go thing to do. Now you see people in the streets listening to music, just kind of lingering on the sidewalk. There's a big beach now that's open on Fridays. It's just a big public beach, but everybody goes there on Fridays, the Islamic holiday of the week. And there are thousands of people swimming in the water, playing soccer on the sand, selling popsicles and things like that. It's really remarkable. If you know what it had been like, because I'd been there you know, so many times, and just a year ago, there were large parts of the city that you, know, you would get shot at if you raised your head. You know, it happened to me. And those parts of the city are now totally quiet. Yeah, it's a pretty extraordinary before and after shot that you described. What is the driving force behind this increased stability? First of all, there is a large African Union peacekeeping force in Mogadishu, and they have been getting bigger, better equipped, better trained, and they have steadily battered the Shabaab. 
the same time you have the insertion of Kenyan and Ethiopian troops in other parts of Somalia that are pushing against the Shabab. So as soon as the Shabab left Mogadishu, that created space for businessmen, for aid workers, for ordinary civilians to move back into the city. And finally, the famine last year cast a spotlight on Somalia and brought in new players like the Turkish uh, government, who came delivering aid and are now doing business in Mogadishu. They've just started twice-weekly flights between Istanbul and Mogadishu, Mm. which would have been unheard of a few years ago. And Somalis are legendary traders, legendary entrepreneurs, and they are pouring money into Mogadishu. One government official estimated at least $50 million in the last couple months. As you said about Mogadishu earlier, a lot more needs to be done. I'm just wondering how uh, Mogadishu, though, contrasts with other parts of Somalia. I mean, is is there a war going on once you leave the city? Outside Mogadishu, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Shabab controls a few uh, areas. You know, their slices is very thin right now, but they still control a few towns. There's fighting around those areas because the Kenyans and Ethiopians are trying to get in. Of course, it is tenuous. But I think once there's enough investment and there's enough to lose in this sort of new vision of Somalia, it's going to be harder and harder to tear it down. Now there's like people putting serious money into Mogadishu. They're going to be standing up to protect that. They're not going to want violence to break out in front of their new million-dollar hotel. That business owner is now on the side of stability, and that's very important. Jeffrey Gettleman with The New York Times, just back from Mogadishu. Thanks so much. Glad to help. As Somalia proves, overcoming a history of violence is often not a smooth process. Another reminder of that comes from a U.S. federal appeals court in Boston. The court is considering whether to force the release of interviews related to the years of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland, also known as the Troubles. The interviews were conducted by a former IRA member for an oral history project at Boston College. The identity of the interviewees was supposed to be kept secret, but police in Northern Ireland want access to the tapes. The BBC's Andy Martin was at the court in Boston this morning. What is in these tapes are frank and candid admissions by paramilitaries about what they did during the Troubles. Uh, we know from, from some of the other tapes that they have spoken about operations they were involved in. They have named names uh, of the people that they conducted these operations with in Belfast. And of course at the end of these operations many, many people died. So they are extremely controversial. They are extremely sensitive. And to put them in the public domain will be, I suppose, extremely interesting. But of course that will lead to all sorts of political uh, and indeed uh, possible criminal uh, ramifications in terms of uh, potential court cases in the future. Now, to the people involved in the uh, oral history project uh, at Boston College, uh, uh, former IRA prisoner turned writer Anthony McIntyre and award-winning journalist Ed Maloney have argued that handing over the tapes uh, could put their lives at risk. Is there one particular interview at at the heart of all this that uh, the police service of Northern Ireland is trying to get a hold of? The one interview that they're trying to get a hold of is that of Dolores Price. Now, she was part of the IRA unit that blew up uh, London's uh, best-known court, the Old Bailey, in 1973. She and her sister, um, Marion Price, who's currently in jail in Northern Ireland uh, under suspicion of being involved in dissident republicanism, uh, were part of that IRA unit. They were uh, close to Gerry Adams. They have since fallen out with Gerry Adams and with Sinn Féin over the routes that that party has taken during the course of the peace process. But the police are very keen to hear what Dolores Price has said about her involvement in the IRA, about her relationship to Gerry Adams, and about the role that that Sinn Féin president played 
uh, during the years of the Troubles. Right. So it's the police service of Northern Ireland that, that wants to obtain the transcripts of these tapes or the tapes themselves. Uh, Boston College, through its oral history, uh, the Belfast Project, has told the former players during the Troubles in Northern Ireland uh, that B.C. would not release these uh, transcripts until they were dead. So who, who now is trying to stop their release? Well, they did give that guarantee, and the difference in all of this is that uh, while Brendan Hughes' tapes were released after his death, Dolores Price actually effectively outed herself. She told a Belfast newspaper that she had taken part in the project, and as a result of that, Boston College says that it does not have the ability to protect her any further because she admitted to it herself. Okay, so it's this particular interview that that the uh, police service of Northern Ireland uh, really want. Why are they so interested in the case of uh, former IRA member Dolores Price? Well, firstly, because she is alive and they feel that there would be evidential value in having that tip. They're also interested because she allegedly has talked about the disappeared. She has allegedly told a Belfast newspaper that she actually drove perhaps the best known of the disappeared uh, to meet her death. That was a lady called Jean McConville, a mother of 10, abducted in 1972 in West Belfast uh, and taken and shot and secretly buried uh, just south of the Irish border. Um, They want to investigate that. And that woman who was disappeared apparently had, uh, according to the IRA and according to some uh, sources, she had given information on the IRA to, uh, to, to police. Yes, she, she was accused by the IRA of having been an informer of passing information to the British uh, security forces. However, that has since been dismissed by an independent investigation. But the IRA still maintain that uh, Jean McConville had been an informer and the IRA still maintain that they had, therefore, uh, the right to shoot her. What is the stance of Boston College uh, on all this? Boston College is uh, mounting its own appeal. That will be heard next month. Their position is that uh, they cannot offer uh, Dolores Price any anonymity, but they are appealing uh, the subpoenas, which is trying to obtain seven other tapes, which the PSNI believe to be pertinent to the disappeared. Now, they are going to fight that in June. Boston College and their former employees, those who who took part in the project, uh, are now in the middle of a fairly acrimonious dispute. Ed Maloney and Anthony McIntyre, those who uh, conducted these interviews, feel that Boston College folded too easily. They feel that they should have destroyed the tapes rather than hand them over. They say that their lives are in danger and uh, that Boston College should honour the agreement that they made. The BBC's Andy Martin at the Federal Appeals Court in Boston. Thank you very much, Andy. You're welcome, Marco. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Yesterday, the U.S. government placed a $10 million bounty on the head of Hafiz Mohammed Saeed. He's the leader of Lashkar-e-Taiba, the Pakistani militant group accused of orchestrating the 2008 terrorist attacks in Mumbai, India. 166 people were killed in those attacks. Today, Saeed openly mocked the American bounty. Speaking at a press conference close to Pakistan's capital, Islamabad, he said the U.S. can contact him whenever it wants to. Saeed's defiance was almost comical and in sharp contrast to the serious accusations against him. In fact, there would be appear to be little to laugh about in Pakistan, given the country's massive problems with extremism, violence and corruption. But surprisingly, there's a small but growing stand-up comedy scene there. Fahad Desmukh reports from Karachi. Yeah. 
It's 8 p.m. and young comic Danish Ali's show is underway at the cultural center in Karachi. Our police are corrupt. Our politicians are weak. He suggests it's about time the country got its own superhero. He imagines what the movie trailer for a Pakistani Batman might sound like. In the city of Karachi, where darkness has spread through the land, a dark night shall come forth to shine light. Alfred, generate the the Urdu punchline, Alfred, start up the generator, and much of Ali's work refers to the tribulations of everyday life in urban Pakistan, power outages, cell phone problems, and poverty. It's a pain in the neck, to be sure, but it's also great fodder for comedy. You just have to open the window and there's humor everywhere. Ali's show was actually meant to happen two weeks earlier, but had to be postponed because of political violence. This is Ali when I spoke to him at the time. You're sitting in an empty hall because my show got postponed because there was a riot in the city. Which other comedian has to deal with that on a daily basis? The last time the show got postponed was because of an unfortunate bomb blast. So tomorrow there'll be another rally, another riot, corrupt politicians, scandals. One politician will say something absurd to the other politician. It'll end up on YouTube for weeks. All these people give us a lot of humor. While Pakistan has a rich tradition of comedy in theatre and on television, the Western-style stand-up format is new. There are only three comedians who regularly do stand-up shows in Pakistan, but the comedy form has grown a devoted following. Sami Shah was the first of the three to put on a solo show. He explains how getting stage time is more difficult for stand-up comics in Pakistan than in other places. You don't have nightclubs here where you can, you know, hone five minutes. That's what happens abroad. You write five minutes, you master it, then you write another five minutes. You don't have that here. Um, so all you have is I, I booked an auditorium, I uh, sold 300 tickets myself, and then I did one hour of stand-up. Um, and if that first hour had gone badly, I'd never done it again, but it went well. So I, I got lucky enough that, yeah, I've been doing it since. One of the things that sets these stand-up comedians apart from other comedians in Pakistan is that they mostly use English rather than Urdu or other local languages. On the one hand, English gives them access to a niche audience, but at the same time, that audience is relatively small. The language choice is a reflection of the three comics' backgrounds. All are relatively well-off and at some point have lived in the West. Shah is an advertising professional by day, Ali just graduated from med school, and the third stand-up comedian, Saad Harun, used to work in his family's textile business. A favorite topic for Pakistani comics is politics, whether it's making fun of local politicians or commenting on international affairs. This is Sami Shah's take on Pakistan's uneasy relationship with the U.S. Like, it's weird. Our relationship with America is so weird. Like, because every few years, we, like, America comes back to us, like, like it's old ex-girlfriend who's desperate and needy for it. And America's always like, no, baby, come back. You know, those guys meant nothing to me. It's always been you. And we're always like, I'm so happy. I didn't throw away any of your old things. They're still here. And then it betrays us again. It cheats on us again. And we're again, we're miserable and crying in the corner and cutting up pictures and listening to, like, Moby soundtracks. And, like, that's the way it is. And I think the fact that we still believe America is stupid, right? But doing stand-up comedy in Pakistan isn't always a laughing matter. The bounds of the subjects that you can openly mock over here aren't as wide as they are in other places. Religion is a no-go now. In the environment we live in and stuff, you just don't go there. Because even though most of your audience is um, 
is not is fairly liberal and open-minded, you don't want to risk the one lunatic who's going to come and shoot you. Um, I mean, I've been threatened before. Um, there was one show I did where someone just came up and middle of the show just stood up and said, you should stop now. So I did. You know, <laughs> I took his advice that time. So comedians have to make a calculated risk in deciding which topics to cover and which to leave behind. This is comedian Saad Harun. There's self-censorship involved because you can get yourself in trouble over here doing, uh, doing things you shouldn't do. Obviously, as a comedian, I mean, unofficially our job is to kind of keep on pushing that boundary as far as we can without toppling over. I mean, it's more important to do comedy over in Pakistan right now than to say something because right now we just don't have any comedy. If, if your idea is, oh, I want to make a point and say something and that's it, that's fine, you'll be gone and then there'll be no comedy. There's not too many comedians out here. All three of the comics are eager to increase their audience not only within Pakistan, but also to get some stage time internationally. I'm trying to understand why people become suicide bombers. I can't understand the virgins thing. I do not understand it. Like, 72 virgins. Like, I don't understand. Why 72? As Shah explains, sometimes jokes about subjects familiar to Pakistanis, like suicide bombings, don't make sense to outsiders. We have a lot of the same cultural touch points because, for example, we also watched... CNN, we also watch, you know, American movies and British comedies and all of that. Um, the same as Western audiences and stuff, but um, little things, like I have this bit about uh, uh, suicide bombing and every comedian in the world has suicide bombing bit, right? But mine had a detail, which I didn't realize, which was only Pakistanis would know, which is that when the suicide bomber blows himself up, his head is always found. Right? Every Pakistani knows that. They always find the freaking head. Like, will you look the way you did the moment you died? Because most suicide bombers, you're just ahead at that point. Um, or, or like, or, or will you look the way you do when you're alive? Because I don't want to meet virgins like this. I did that bit for BBC recently, and everyone was like, oh my God, that's such a random detail, that's so Pakistani, that detail. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. So, you know, like, um, I think the, the, the thing that makes us differences, our details are slightly more bizarre and maybe more morbid than someone else's. Morbid, perhaps. But it's Pakistani humor adapting to the unusual times. For the world, I'm Fahad Desmukh in Karachi, Pakistan. For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for a city in the Czech Republic. It's not the capital, Prague. We're looking for a city in the eastern part of the country. The city is the historic capital of Moravia. It was a big trading hub in the Middle Ages. There's a story that Julius Caesar founded the original settlement, though it's unlikely he ever set foot there. Still, the city began as a Roman military camp with the name Julius Hill. It's a city full of churches, including a thousand-year-old cathedral. We'll tell you more about another church in the city, a chapel, actually. For a few days recently, it was transformed into one giant musical instrument. But before we get to that, we want the name of this historic city. Marco Werman ahead, a scientist stumbles on a discovery about sharks. They don't like magnets. It's probably something like a bright flashlight across your eyes, and it's just temporarily blinding and you're startled, and it's not pleasant. Plus, a baby woolly mammoth found in Siberia almost perfectly preserved. 
up next on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It sounds like a plot device from a comic book, a simple substance that can make the powerful weak. But it's not kryptonite. An American chemist says he's found a substance, several in fact, that work against some of the most fearsome predators in the sea. And he wants to use his discovery to protect them. Last week, he visited the Bahamas to do some field testing. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program, Nova, tagged along. The wind's picking up on the island of North Bimini. Eric Stroud has tied his hair back in a ponytail to keep it from getting in his way. He's standing on a pier, looking down at the turquoise water. As you see, the current is ripping through here right now. The tide is going out. So any scent that's put here goes right to the outside of the channel, and that's where pretty much the big sharks are right now. Stroud's setting up an experiment. He unwraps 20 pounds of frozen sardines. It's pretty yummy drops them into a mesh bag tied to the pier and tosses the bag into the water. He's hoping to attract a large bull shark. It's a fairly dangerous shark. It can be aggressive, especially when provoked or cornered. If a bull shark does show up, he'll throw a large baited hook into the water. But it's not your typical fish hook. We're just looking to see will he flinch. If all goes well, this hook won't catch any sharks. You see, Stroud develops shark repellents, It's been a passion of his for more than a decade. Back at the Bimini Biological Field Station, where he's come to study sharks, Stroud explains what led to this unusual career choice. He used to work full-time as a chemist in the pharmaceutical industry. Then, in the summer of 2001, he and his wife went on a cruise to Bermuda. We hit bad weather, and we were trapped in a cabin. And on the news was shark bite after shark bite. It seemed like everyone that stepped in the ocean in Florida was getting attacked by a shark that summer. That's when his wife suggested he turn his talents to developing shark repellents. When they got home to New Jersey, he set up several kiddie pools in his basement, and he filled them with small sharks. Your wife was cool with having all these sharks in the basement? I'm not sure if she was cool with it or if, you know, that's, that's just love. Um. <laughs> he watched how the sharks fed, swam, and behaved. Then one day, Stroud accidentally dropped a large magnet from his workbench. And some little nurse sharks um, darted. That night, we put magnets into the tank and couldn't believe the nurse sharks were just extremely distressed and stayed away from them. What Stroud discovered was that magnets repel sharks. In the Bahamas, Stroud set up a demonstration for me. So we are in a pen full of sharks right now. We're standing waist-deep just offshore in a fenced-in patch of the sea. Several young lemon sharks cruise the perimeter. Stroud's assistant captures one of the sharks and slowly rotates it onto its back underwater, which puts it into a sleep-like state. Then Stroud takes a magnet and spins it as he moves it toward the shark. It responds immediately. There we go. Look at that beautiful bend away from the magnet. Just like it's repelled by it like it's another magnet. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he's turning... Just arcs his whole body. 
Sharks have electrical sensors. They look like tiny freckles on their snouts. Biologists believe sharks use these sensors to detect the heartbeats of their prey and to navigate using the Earth's magnetic field. Stroud suspects the spinning magnet overwhelms those electrical sensors. It's probably something like a bright flashlight across your eyes, and it's just temporarily blinding and you're startled, and it's not pleasant. Stroud made his discovery in 2004. It helped him jumpstart a company he'd founded called Shark Defense that aims to develop and commercialize shark repellents. He and his team tested other substances and found some non-magnetic metals also interfere with a shark's electrical sensors. Certain metals didn't work, others did. You begin to hone down the periodic table. Like, wait a minute, all the effect is the rare earth elements. Rare earth metals like samarium, neodymium, and praseodymium. Stroud's original plan was to develop repellents to protect people, and he's working on ways to do that. For instance, he and his partners are researching a magnetized underwater fence that might keep sharks away from swimmers. But his main focus has switched to using repellents to protect sharks. Many shark species are being overfished. Some are endangered, and one reason is that fishermen trying to catch other fish often catch sharks by accident. Stroud wondered what if he could produce fish hooks that catch fish like tuna and halibut as usual, but that sharks steer clear of. We realized we can magnetize the fishing hook and we can coat it with a rare earth metal. And it looks just like a regular hook, and we get the benefit of two repellents at the hook. Several countries are now testing his so-called smart hooks to see if they work. Some tests show a 60 to 70 percent reduction in the number of sharks caught. Stroud's received an award from the World Wildlife Fund for his invention, and he's hoping to sell the product commercially before long. In the meantime, Stroud continues to refine the design, trying new combinations of metals and magnets, and observing how they affect different types of sharks. Which is why he's on this pier on North Bimini Island, chumming the waters for a large bull shark. He wants to test a magnetized fish hook wrapped in a magnesium foil. A couple of eagle rays and barracudas swim by, but there's no sign of a bull shark, so his hook sits on the pier. Sometimes nothing happens quickly in shark repellent research. Stroud waits for more than an hour. Then he pulls the bait bag in and dumps the sardines onto the pier. He calls it a day. So we have to try again. Eight years after the chance discovery in his New Jersey basement, Stroud's come to accept that product development is a slow process. But his attraction to repellents runs deep, and he says the sharks keep luring him back. For Nova in the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Bimini, Bahamas. You can see how sharks respond to magnets and other repellents. We've got videos at theworld.org. You'll see even more on PBS tonight. Watch Nova's Hunting the Elements with David Pogue and explore the periodic table with Nova's free app for the iPad. Go to iTunes and search for Nova Elements. Let's shift now from a creature of today's ocean to a creature of the past. Scientists recently discovered a baby woolly mammoth preserved in the frozen tundra of northern Siberia. Nicknamed Yuka, the mammoth lived around 10,000 years ago. So you might think there's not much left to it, but you'd be wrong. It's amazingly well-preserved. Check out the video at theworld.org. Dan Fisher is a paleontologist, part of a team of researchers who have been studying uh, this woolly mammoth named Yuka. Uh, Tell us more about just how well-preserved is the body. In terms of the quality of tissue preservation, yucca is really wonderful. I think almost certainly the best preserved mammoth we've encountered yet. 
this specimen is less complete than, for instance, Luba, a baby mammoth that was found in 2007. But yucca is especially interesting, really very important despite its somewhat incompleteness. Describe what the animal would look like. The animal would look much like a baby elephant, maybe a three. We think yucca was maybe three or so years old at the time of its death, four and a half, five feet at the shoulder. It would have been, of course, covered with a dense woolly coat. And did you find any of that hair on yucca or maybe trunk? Uh, basically all of yucca's skin, with the exception of a few small patches, is present and in wonderful condition. And the skin is still soft and pliable and, and still with much of its original hair, which is a sort of blonde, reddish color. Blonde, red hair on a, a cousin of the elephant. That's bizarre. Yeah. The hair is especially thick and, and well-preserved on the animal's legs and that remain in, in wonderful condition. And tell us where yucca was discovered specifically. Yucca was found along the coast of the Arctic Ocean, a particular portion of it called the Laptev Sea. To the east of the delta of the Lena River, one of the major rivers that crosses Siberia from south to north, uh, and the political region known as Yakutia. This was an environment that was inhabited also by woolly rhinos, by muskox, by steppe bison, by uh, wolves, of course. So this was a vigorous, productive community of organisms that spread across the northern reaches of our world during the Ice Age. Dan, earlier you said you found yucca especially interesting. Uh, from a personal point of view, what did you find interesting about this newly discovered woolly mammoth? Well, from a personal point of view, we're, we're always eager to study these specimens. There's many remaining questions that we have about the, the anatomy, the biology of these animals. And in particular, though, yucca presents some evidence that humans were involved in its history. In involved in what way? Involved in the sense that Although we have evidence that yucca was pursued and perhaps killed by, we think, maybe lions or some large felid predator, we do not, in fact, see the kinds of damage that lions typically produce as they finish off or finally kill an animal. In fact, what we have in, instead of this is a strange series of incisions, um, types of incisions that are not part of the usual, let's say, feeding repertoire of lions or wolves or any of the predators that we would expect in this environment that could, however, have been produced by primitive humans. There are cut marks also on some of the bones of the mammoth that appear to be cut marks made by some sort of sharp implement. It's too early to say stone tools because we haven't examined these marks with precision at this point. But that's certainly on our agenda. Sounds like you've got another scientific mystery to solve on your hands. We do. That's the, the way of life we've chosen. Dan Fisher, a paleontologist at the Museum of Paleontology at the University of Michigan. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Back to the present and the human world now. Palestinians in Gaza are no strangers to political infighting. For years, the territory has felt the effects of the long-running feud between Gaza's ruling Hamas faction and the Fatah leadership in the West Bank. The latest effect is an unprecedented fuel crisis. Gaza's only power plant shut down in early February for lack of fuel and has been limping along ever since. Now fuel is being trucked into Gaza from Israel under a deal brokered by Egypt. 
But as the world's Matthew Bell reports, there's concern this might be a temporary fix. It's morning rush hour, and a line of cars, taxis, and trucks outside of a Gaza City gas station stretches down the street, block after block. Drivers turn off their vehicles, stand outside, and wait. In front of the station, people with big plastic fuel jugs jostle for a position in line. Hamas security men with beards, navy blue jackets, and AK-47s stand guard in case tempers flare. Standing next to a diesel pump, smoking a cigarette, a station attendant says the men with guns are here to keep things organized. This is a real crisis, he says. There just isn't enough fuel in Gaza to meet the demand. We have seen crisis before, but this time it, 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 it takes long time, almost more than uh, three months. A few cars down the line, a taxi driver who gives his name as Abu Mohammed says things are bad. First of all, you know, it is definitely affecting our life, our kids, our family. I spend uh, five, six hours queuing, and at the end when I reach the queue, they say uh, there is no enough fuel. Israel controls the legal flow of fuel into Gaza, but Israel and Hamas don't speak to each other. So the fuel is purchased for Gaza by the West Bank PA. Palestinian Authority, that is. Hamas officials have blamed the PA over the past couple of years for being stingy with fuel and greedy for tax revenue. The Fatah-controlled PA says Hamas wants fuel but doesn't always want to pay for it. Enter cheap Egyptian diesel and gasoline smuggled illegally through tunnels in the south. But now Egypt has its own fuel shortage, so authorities there have been cracking down on fuel smuggling. That's had an impact at Gaza's gas stations and at Gaza's only power plant, which runs on diesel. So the fuel crisis has spread beyond the pump to the electrical grid. For weeks now, power has been out for 18 hours a day across the Gaza Strip. In the infants' intensive care unit at Al-Shifa Hospital, diesel generators fill the gap powering modern machines during the blackouts. If the generators run out of fuel, the 13 babies here would not last very long. As a precaution, the International Committee of the Red Cross this week started transferring emergency fuel supplies to Gaza hospitals. Dr. Hanan Al-Wadiya says life in Gaza for most of its 1.7 million people amounts to going from one crisis to the next. Not our fault, we don't know. But we always, always, always we pray to the God. Just what we do. Pray. Khalil Abu Shamala is a human rights activist in Gaza City. He says ultimately Israel is responsible for the humanitarian situation in Gaza because it still controls the borders. But the rulers of Gaza, Abu Shamala says, have failed to live up to their responsibilities as well. I cannot listen or accept any justification from Hamas. Hamas is responsible. You control everything. You collect money and taxes. You should say to the people that we are ready to provide you the the services for these taxes. A spokesman for Hamas told me Gaza's rulers are suffering alongside their people, and he said the majority of the population still supports Hamas. Yesterday, Egypt finally brokered an agreement between the West Bank and Gaza. If the arrangement can be sustained, it could hugely improve people's quality of life in Gaza. If not, the next crisis is right around the corner. 
For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Gaza City. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was funded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For our GeoQuiz today, we were looking for a city in the Czech Republic, the historic capital of Moravia. The answer is Olmos. For a city that goes back centuries, modern-day Olmos is pretty trailblazing. It hosts a multimedia festival, for one thing. The festival recently commissioned an awe-inspiring bit of digital art, as the world's Alex Galifant reports. There's a video doing the rounds online from the most recent multimedia festival in Olmos. It shows the interior of a chapel. Every detail is marked out by shifting lights. First a statue of an angel, then a window, then a stone pillar. As you watch the video, you also see little dots of light floating about. They're from handheld laser pointers, like the ones that drive cats crazy. And here's what makes this so neat. The laser pointers control the sounds. The main purpose of the whole installation, you could say it's big musical instrument. Tomasz Wojak is one of the two artists behind the installation, called Archiphon. He created the music and the sound effects, while his friend Daniel Gregor figured out the visuals. Wojak told me that when the multimedia festival in Olmos came calling, the organizers offered them a range of venues. But this Baroque chapel stood out. Oh, and by the way, it's not used as a chapel anymore. In fact, it's been deconsecrated. (laughs) You can do like uh, some uh, more radical things there, maybe. What really grabbed Vojak and Gregor was the sheer variety of elements to play with. Angels, windows and pillars, statues, paintings, ledges and stone reliefs. They used about a hundred elements in all. Somebody comes into the place and he uses these laser pointers and he touches with the laser pointer some element like statue or window or whatever and it somehow reacts. And they had ten people in there at a time, kind of playing the chapel. It's a lovely idea. Point the laser at the angel and the angel sings. Point three lasers at three angels and they sing together. Sure, it's just technology. A wide-angle projector, a webcam and some clever software. But watch the video and you'll see it adds up to something kind of magical. Unfortunately, the festival's over now. It was only for a few days, which is kind of shame, <laughs> but will be only in your memories for the people who were there. Next up for Vojak and Gregor, bringing new life to an old library in Brussels. Although the idea of working in the US appeals too. Definitely. <laughs> for The World, I'm Alex Galifant. You can watch laser pointers turn the chapel into one giant musical instrument, the videos at theworld.org. The members of the Nairobi band Sauti Soul met in high school. They sang in an a cappella group. After they graduated, they kept on making music. And over the years, they've become one of Kenya's most popular groups. Here's Marissa Neff with today's Global Head. The first thing you notice about Sauti Soul is their incredible clothing. All six members were wearing tailored conga print jackets with beaded epaulets at their South by Southwest performance in Austin last month. They kind of resembled an East African Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. 
There was something boy-bandish about their coordinated outfits and synchronized dance moves, but the music was much more nuanced. As singer Bianame Barraza explains, this band doesn't want to be hemmed in by notions of what African music is supposed to sound like. We are not playing traditional African music. We, we live in the capital. We, we listen to Western race, pop, and a lot of radio content from here. What we do is Afro-pop, so we adapt a lot of influences from what we listen to. Barasa says Saudi Soul sprang in part from a frustration with Nairobi's languishing music scene. That was in 2006. For the longest time ever, every other artist in Nairobi was trying to copy the West. Every other artist was, was trying to sound like Jay-Z, sound like Beyonce. When we came into the scene, we opened, like, we opened up doors for a new genre. And people love what we do because it's different. Saudi Soul's sound has brought them a huge following in Kenya. Their breakthrough hit was a song named Lazizi. The Swahili lyrics describe a young guy who can't afford to take the girl he likes out on a date. Finally, he saves enough money to buy her a coffee. The storyline's a bit corny, Baraza says, but it resonates with Kenyans. Because of the innocence of the song. It's, uh, and the story. It's and the story, you know. So for the Kenyan market, that song in particular, it was a touching song to them because they could relate to it on a one-on-one basis. And um, after that, we did Blue Uniform, and everyone could relate to Blue Uniform because the song like Blue Uniform is about the policemen and how... They harass, you know, young people in the streets, you know, what are you doing walking around at this time? And so, like, the police brutality part is something that everyone has gone through in their lives in Kenya. Though their songs speak to a Kenyan audience, Saudi Soul wants to be taken seriously well beyond Kenya. Singer Willis Shimano told me that one of their dreams is to open for Coldplay or to be nominated for a Grammy in a, quote, non-African category. No African artist has crossed over properly. I think there should be that level of balanced playing field. Um, and that's what we want. And that's what we, we're hoping to make happen, to be, to be able to be put in that field where we can earn proper respect. You know? So that's what we mean by like a proper crossover.
for the World. I'm Marissa Neff. That's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the United States Institute of Peace, helping to prevent, manage, and resolve violent international conflict. Online at usip.org and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and the Carnegie Corporation. PRI, Public Radio International.